This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thrilled today to be joined by one of the leaders in robotic spine surgery in the country. We get a chance to visit today with Dr. James Leipzig. Uh, Dr. Leipzig is a hugely well-regarded spine surgeon. He's also just completed his 100th robotic spine case. We're going to talk about his career, about his practice, how he got so excited about spine surgery, particularly robotic spine surgery, and, and why it's really so important and, and such a, to doing better spine surgery. Dr. Leipzig, can you take a moment and, and tell us about yourself and your career first in your practice? Yeah, sure. And thank you for having me on. Uh, well, I'm from uh, Southern California, from Los Angeles and um, graduate of UCLA Med School and then stayed there for orthopedic surgery. Did a, um, I then went to Cornell, the hospital for special surgery for my fellowship in spine surgery. When I finished my fellowship, I was in academics initially at Ohio State University, full-time faculty. And then I moved on and transitioned to private practice basically. So I've been in you know, practice. This is my 32nd year, and I'm just doing spine. I don't do orthopedics. And, and you're a UCLA, Southern California person by background, then New York, and ended up in Roanoke. Roanoke's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful community. You know, how did you end up in Roanoke after, after <laughs> you know, California and, and after New York? And of course, Roanoke's beautiful. I've been to Roanoke plenty of times, actually, and lovely. But 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 an unusual place for a Southern California surfer guy. How, how did you end up? Uh, probably probably weren't a surfer to begin with. But tell us how you ended up in in Roanoke. Well, actually, I was a surfer. You know, if you're if you grew up in L.A., you know, you surf. So surf and play tennis and ski. So I did all that. And um, you're right. I don't. I think if you had asked me, you know, many years ago, am I going to be living in Virginia? I of course would say, where's Virginia? You know, I know where. California is, and that's about it. it. It's not that interesting, really, or that old a story. When I finished my residency, you know, and I'd been at UCLA uh, at that point for 10 years, and, um, you know, my family's right in that area. I grew up in that area. Um, I kind of broke the tie to Southern California when I moved to New York and then to Columbus, Ohio, and started realizing that there's, like, some really nice places in the world to live that is that aren't in L.A., and so that was new to me, you know, because that's just the mindset of people, or at least my mindset, um, growing up in LA. But you know, the, the old story. I, I married a woman from the South, and she wanted to live in a small town and uh, raise our kids here. And um, you know, there was a pretty good opportunity to let me work and you know practice medicine the way I wanted to. And so, I, I took advantage of that, and it, it's worked out well. It's but you're right. For me to live in Runner, Virginia, which is a pretty small town, but it's beautiful here. And it's, you know, it's allowed me to practice the way I wanted to practice. Basically, just, you know, uh, be in control and not having someone be in control of me, which is kind of nice. I, I'm going to ask you one more question, and then we'll go to serious questions about spine surgery and robotic spine surgery. The next question is, you, you look at surfing, skiing, and tennis. Which do you enjoy the most? Which have you enjoyed the most? And which were you the best at? And were they different or the same? Yeah, I was fairly average uh, tennis player and probably a pretty crummy surfer, you know. But well, I could I could surf though. Um, I think it's uh, skiing. Uh, skiing would win on that one. So. And does the family still ski? 
kids at ski too. Um, you know, unfortunately, we all kind of faded away from that, you know. And so, um, both my kids were competitive swimmers, and um, you know, it seems like we were always so busy that we never had the that many opportunities to go skiing. So, no, that's a regret of mine. We kind of let that fade away. Well, let's talk about something that didn't fade away. Let's talk about spine surgery and robotic spine surgery. How did you get so interested in robotics and spine surgery? And talk about why robotics, whether spine surgery, other kinds of surgeries, it comes so important. Can you take a few moments there? Yeah, and I, I am passionate about the use of robotics and the use of technology uh, in spine surgery. So I have, you know, I do, you know, cervical, of course, and uh, but mostly, you know, anyone in spine surgery practice, unless you're at certain centers, you know, we focus on adult degenerative work. And so there's certainly a lot of, you know, decompression fusions or, you know, um, treating, you know, degenerative spondylolisthesis, degenerative scoliosis, those type of things. So I have always enjoyed technology and, and I love the one thing that's really attracted me to spine surgery was the fact that, you know, besides the fact that it was challenging, you could really make a difference for people. But the, you know, the need to be comfortable with biomechanics and biomaterials and technology that really are integrated well into this field of spine surgery. So as I practiced, um, you know, my practice evolved, um, like many others, you know, I, I gravitated or uh, toward minimally invasive spine surgery. So I do the vast majority uh, of my cases, you know, with minimally invasive techniques, you know, tubular retractors and those types of things. In that setting, using, um, you know, doing minimally invasive, you know, T-lifts or backing up um, anterior fusion, I do a lot of anterior spine surgery as well. Um, you know, we are, you know, doing percutaneous screws is a, a major part of minimally invasive spine surgery. And the state of the art is pretty amazing um, of placement of pedicle screws percutaneously, basically a biopsy needle, a jamsheenium needle, and a mallet. So handheld, fluoroscopically guided um, percutaneous pedicle screw fixation. And, you know, that involves a lot of um, kind of fairly tedious work, you know, and a lot of x-ray. And so I started thinking, you know, should I transition to use navigation, which can definitely cut down on the radiation, but you're still you're still utilizing basically your hand holding a biopsy needle and then tapping it into bone with a with a mallet, you know, a hammer. And so it's fairly crude if you think about that model versus the ability to use robotic guidance with navigation as a backup. So when I learned about the Mazor X, that's the robot I use, um, when I learned about robotics and just the precision that that would allow, and of course, the significant reduction in x-ray exposure, you know, to the staff, to, to the surgeon, to the patient, um, I became very interested in it. So it really added a, a layer of precision and really took a a tedious part of the case. And sometimes some pedicles were really hard to enter. You know, others were a piece of cake and took a few seconds and some took, you know, a long time because of, you know, different anatomy. And also you've had cases where you would have, you know, big osteophytic caps over, you know, surrounding the um, area of the pedicle. It's just difficult to see the pedicle or patients who were osteopenic and it was hard um, to see the pedicle. 
those were all really challenging from a percutaneous perspective. And think of the difficult, like, um, percutaneous um, approach to the S1 pentacle in some cases. It can be very difficult. But with the robot, you know, the robot doesn't know it's difficult. The robot doesn't know it's hard. It's just the robot just goes where you send it. And you, of course, get to plan that off the CT scan ahead of time. So it really took a part of the case that was tedious, sometimes very time-consuming, and sometimes very stressful, and other times just very difficult, and made it just a routine part of the case. So when you add in that simplicity, which is interesting to say about a robot, but I do think it makes the case simpler, certainly safer, it really appealed to me. And, and therefore, I started researching you know, the, the robotic techniques and, and the skills that you needed to use it, and the, tech, uh, you know, the pitfalls, of course, of using a robot, because it's a big leap of faith. <laughs> to um, to trust that machine. So, Dr. Leipzig, really two 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 questions. First, it now seems primitive, for example, that 15, 20, 30 years ago, people were operating without having done x-rays or images beforehand to really understand what was going on. They had to sort of go in and figure it out versus having images and x-rays to understand before. That now seems very primitive to us. Is it going to be a situation where in 10 years, it seems primitive to us to have operated without digitally assisted surgery or robotic surgery? Any thoughts on that? Is that where we're going? And then the next question I'll have for you is, what advice do you have for surgeons evolving into robotics? Any thoughts there? I definitely have thoughts. Um, well, first of all, to answer your question, you know, that is a question that I ask and think about all the time because, you know, surgeons aren't noted to have like small egos and such and we all think that we're pretty on top of things and we're pretty great at what we do but you know like you said 30 years ago we thought the same thing and if we look back the way we did things 30 years ago we're it's in primitive so i always think like wow we think we're pretty advanced today you know 2022 2023 where will we be in 2053 um there are people that say that you know all cases will be done robotically um, I don't agree with that, and I think uh, the robot's an uh, overkill, you know, for some cases. Some cases are very simple. You know, um, if you think, for example, um, if for the radiologists, if they're going to do a uh, transpedicular biopsy, you know, should they use robotics or should they use, you know, handheld fluoroscopically guided biopsy needle? And if, for a single pedicle, you know. Or if you're just putting in two screws and the patient has great anatomy, I don't think it's it's going to be mandatory. But I do think that um, a combination of robotics when they're simpler, because the, I didn't I don't find the robot simple. I don't find the robot easy. I don't find the robot user friendly, and I think there's a lot of pitfalls. So I can touch on that again. Um, but I do believe that in the future, you know, so where are we 20, 30 years from now? Navigation, you know, 3D computerized navigation has to be a standard. And I also think, you know, there's a company, I forget the name of it, I, I played with the technology with, you know, augmented reality, where when you look into the wound, you are seeing the bone and you can see the pedicle, you have x-ray vision, you know, that, that exists today. Um, and for the cases where you don't need the robotic guidance. So it's just a guidance system. Um, I do think that in the future, you know, the majority of 
cases will be done either robotically or with navigation or as the augmented reality improves and becomes simpler, um, some combination of that. It just seems foolhardy to start to place screws in the pedicle um, without the use of navigation. I mean, it just makes it so much safer and, and quicker. So, Dr. Leipzig, could you explain to me what the learning curve on the robots are? Yes, and the learning curve is difficult. I, I, I believe that you know learning to use the robot safely and routinely, which I, I, I clearly feel we're at at this point, um, the, is, is difficult. Um, and one of the most difficult things I've adapted into my practice or integrated into my practice. But as far as the learning curve goes, I think um, I was told it's about 40 cases. Um, I was told that at 20 cases, you kind of lose everything, and then you will um, have 20 more cases to get back up on top of the learning curve and get past it. And so we did um, some cases, and we I, you know, booked out tons of time, went very slowly, and um, did pretty well. By case number 20, I mean, I was feeling pretty good about it. And then, sure enough, we started having some issues um, where, you know, setup issues, registration issues, uh, accuracy issues. It was just like, what happened? I mean, we're really, what happened here? And unfortunately, whoever had told me the 20 and then you crash and have 20 more to get on the curve, they were accurate. So what I learned is number one, you can't do robotics by yourself. I mean, you need a good team. So you're the scrub nurse, the circulating nurse, the clinical specialist that's in the room with you. You have to have um, radiology on board to do the CT scan exactly by protocol, which isn't a big deal. It's just a lot of communication and set up initially. And number one, and number two, once your team is set up, I think it's really important to do a couple mock cases with, you know, the company will bring in, you know, models, you know, latex models with spine inside and do let everyone work it and, and let everyone feel comfortable with the equipment and let everyone feel comfortable with the setup, you know, basically not to bang the reference frame and to disrupt the navigation, um, how to set things up and such. So I think it's really important to focus on the team and to have a dedicated team that's interested in using robotics and patient. The, um, because it takes a lot of patience. Sometimes you have difficulty registration with registration and such, and or you're not completely sure that you're accurate, so you have to be patient enough to step back and say, let's double check everything again, because it takes a lot to trust that machine um, and to develop your workflow. The other thing I believe is that it would be very difficult to be good at robotics if you're not good at not using robotics. I mean, I, I think I've heard people say that one of their concerns is that spine fellows today may go out and practice having never done a, put, in a, put a screw in by themselves um, without the use of robotics or navigation. I think you need to learn the backup. Um, you know, what happens if the robot fails? You know, you have to be able to place them handheld or maybe open, you know, whatever the case may be. So, I think you need a good foundation in the fundamentals of spine surgery. And it is not a substitute for not learning those techniques and understanding your anatomy. I think you have to be really good and really comfortable. And the robotic instrumentation is different now. We have different drills, we have different drill guides, we have 
navigation. When I first started with the Mazor X, we did not have stealth navigation and we were drilling blind. And I had a couple holes that I drilled that when I tapped and stimulated the tap, I, you know, I'd say low thresholds and I, you know, carefully looked and I was lateral and I, which is a common error that you can make. We know how to avoid that now, but I didn't then. So, you know, what did I do? You know, we can't, you can't force the issue in the spine. You know, you have to be safe. So just, okay, we're not using the robot here. I'm going handheld for this one screw and, and, and salvage the case. So I think number one, your fundamentals are, you have to really understand what you're doing, understand the anatomy and have your fundamental skills of placement of hardware, you know, without all that technology, you have to know how to do that. And then number two, I would say for the first, you know, five or 10 cases, pick, pick really good anatomy, you know, larger pedicles, better bone quality that you can easily see on, on radiographs and um, carefully plan those, um, spend some time with the, the robot tech and spend some time with a, a you know, a, a mentor or someone who has been experienced because you the way you place your screws and where you place your screws is is a bit different with the robot than other techniques. But once you get used to it, it becomes the new norm and it becomes very quick. I um I think it's a learning curve that's definitely worth you know uh, mastering because now when I let's say for example on Tuesday I'll I'll do a, an A lift and we'll back it up with screws. I mean, it's just, it's almost an afterthought. It's so simple. And we can place, um, you know, make a little incision, um, place the drill guide in, drill a hole, put a screw in. I mean, we're talking 15, 20 seconds per screw. And then you have to get set up for the next level. But it just becomes a simple part of the case. And when it's become simple, routine, reliable, routine, that's safe. That's safety. So I think the safety profile really increases. But my, the bottom line, I would say, is number one, prepare well ahead of time with your team. And number two, don't go in with a bunch, a big caseload. Uh, maybe, you know, just say, we're just going to do this case today and something else. And just have no stressor and be super patient. And especially for the first 10 or 20 cases. Well, Dr. Leipzig, I want to thank you for this very informative conversation. And I want to thank you for joining the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. You're very welcome. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Thank you.